This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Nestled snug within Inherent Vice's second scene, just as Shasta Faye Hepworth has emerged from a whirlpool of the past and into the sea-salted and pot-smogged air of Doc's bungalow, is a moment in which our knockabout detective asks his ex-old if the thing she's trying to figure out is whether putting a nuthouse snatch on her married man friend Mickey Wolfman is right or wrong. Worse than that, Shasta answers, how much loyalty I owe him. What do we owe one another? Or the people in our lives? Or the people out of our lives, but still in our hearts? What do we owe the person next to us on the bus or sidewalk or movie theater? What do we owe anyone? It's a question, all right. One that skulks and haunts and teases not just the characters of Inherent Vice, but its viewers as well. As a definitive member of the Not A Movie For Everyone Club, how much does someone owe a movie they just don't like? Speaking of skulking and haunting. That's the question teasing our host today, as well as his guest. We are recording this on a particularly apocalyptic day today in Los Angeles with 40 to 70 mile an hour winds. And it seems like half of Southern California is currently on fire. And so it feels like a particularly apt day to be talking about both a very windy scene and what is going to be, I think, a very interesting episode of this show because I will be discussing Inherent Vice with someone who does not like Inherent Vice. Um, and I've already promised her that I'm going to keep my yelling and my tears to a minimum. But like I said, it is very apocalyptic out there today. Uh, I am going to be very emotional, but I will try to keep myself under control. And I want to start by reading one of my favorite Twitter burns about one of my favorite written by one of my favorite writers thrilled to have wholeheartedly enjoyed a pta movie so now i can make some friends <laughs> <laughs> this is what today's guest tweeted after seeing paul thomas anderson's phantom thread upon its release and she's elsewhere written about being a little alienated by the master and put to sleep by our movie in question all of which, honestly, are reasons why I wanted to speak to her today. Because if this show is going to be an in-depth conversation about and an exploration of Inherent Vice, then something that should be addressed, and part of that conversation, is the fact that there are a lot of people who did not and continue to not like this film. Some of them are PTA fans, some of them aren't. Some of them were expecting something funnier or less melancholy. And some just think it's boring and hate it. And so I feel like it would be a bit of a cheat to not have at least one guest for whom Inherent Vice just doesn't work come on the show. And that's a good reason to talk to today's guest, but it's not the only one. Other reasons include the facts that she is one of the wittiest, most insightful film critics I know and read. And as a fellow editor at what I believe to be the best site of independent film criticism around, Brightwall Dark Room, she approaches every topic and energy and incisiveness that frankly is extraordinarily frustrating to read as another writer. 
and extremely refreshing to read as a reader. And before I have her on, just because I love it so much, I want to give a favorite example of uh, of her writing, which is this description of PTA veteran Daniel Day-Lewis's character Cecil in the film A Room with a View. Cecil is a nightmare. He's the worst possible amalgamation of what every person who describes themselves as a nerd on dating apps is like in real life. Loud, boastful, pretentious, chaste, rude, and stuffy. He doesn't like being outside. He hoards Lucy like a possession to be trotted out. He loves to read aloud from a book, the Victorian era version of making someone watch an eight minute long video. He has never had fun and he's not interested in the idea whatsoever. At one point, he mentions the concept of a joke and I know he's never even heard one before. Cecil is reality to a T. Nothing you want, but everything you deserve. I hate him. He's my favorite character. And with that, Fran Hoffner, welcome to the show. What an intro. Thank you so much. <laughs> I forgot I wrote that tweet about <laughs> Phantom Thread. Um, it worked really well for me. I'm, on, I'm getting some male friends now, and it's been interesting. <laughs> well, I, had, I have a very long list here of gotcha tweets that I could have thrown at you <laughs> vis-a-vis PTA, and I felt like this was the the funniest and the most apt and the one least likely to start us throwing things at each on our respective screens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's funny. I guess it's good. <laughs> Whatever. Um, but as we talked in the Brightwall Darkroom Slack in the weeks leading up to this, um, I promised you that I was going to behave myself and not be a Twitter reply guy and actually you to death and, uh, you know, light uh, light torches and throw pitchforks or anything like that. And I am I, going to hold myself to that. Um, but that said, I just wanted to start off with this question, which is, how dare you? I, thank you. How dare thank you? Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm just, uh, I'm sort of a provocateur. <laughs> Not really like, I don't like like sort of the mainstream taste. And you could call me a little bit of a joker, I would say. <laughs> uh, and that is why I dare dislike this film. I would not even go so far as to say I dislike this film. I think I would say I tepidly like this film. You tepidly like? Well, I, I came around on it. That's an improvement. Yeah, I came around on it on this rewatch, but like only to the point of going from like subtly dislike to slightly like. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna bite my lip right now <laughs> and I'm gonna take a deep breath and I'm, yeah, gonna go, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna go through my relaxation chants and that's uh, great you gotta work on those i'm gonna burn some oil here mm. um mostly to block out the smell of all the dead woodland i was animals gonna say you gotta be careful in the air. what you're just setting um, on fire out there all right well let's let's go back to the beginning for you what when was the first time you saw it hair vice um i think i saw a press screening of it actually back in chicago um so theatrical saw it in theaters mm-hmm. Did you make? Did you make it through? Did you stay awake? No. You 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 didn't. No, I lost like a good twenty minutes of the middle of it. I would say. Um, and maybe sort of <laughs> fell asleep throughout, which was also my experience with the master. I'll say as well, a movie I've not revisited. But I think that I was dealing with sort of a chemical imbalance when I saw the master. But that's like a whole other story. Uh, would you say you're not a PTA fan in general? I like. I'm like fifty fifty. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I saw that. I saw that you like Boogie Nights. I love uh, um, Boogie Nights, and I love Phantom Thread. Uh, I will. I. I mean, not just to keep reading your work, but it, it's it's really easy to do because it's so good. One of my favorite lines of yours was in 
something you wrote about Boogie Nights where you were listing your favorite characters and you wrote that your second favorite character is you for the hour after you realized it was Alfred Molina in the role at the end and you started spiraling and watched that sequence three times in a row and then one more time later that day and then you know your third favorite character is Reed Rothschild. I don't want to, not to put you on trial and I'm breathing into a paper bag to stop myself from doing that. What about Inherent Vice doesn't work for you? Do you, do you, do you look, or do you look at people like me and the other people that are coming on the show, and do you just think that there's something wrong with us, that that there's some sort of weird, like, mass hysteria or delusion that we're suffering beneath? No. No, I don't feel that. And I was trying to sort of, like, liken Inherent Vice in a director, maybe, like, in another director's filmography. Like, so I saw, when I saw it in theaters, I did see it with a friend who's also, like, a huge Thomas Pynchon fan. Mm-hmm. So I come at it, I sort of came into the screening of Inherent Vice not particularly being a Paul Thomas Anderson fan and not having a ton of familiarity with Pynchon's work. I had sort of the broad overview of like what to expect from it, but Mm -hmm. still felt, you know, like moderately alienated by the sort of, uh, you know, like sprawling worlds of it. That's sort of just like maybe not necessarily a genre I love, like the the broader cinematic universe within a movie where it's maybe less about the like who's who and more about the, you know, the vibe of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a heavy vibe it. movie. It's a definite it's a big vibe. vibe movie. It's a big vibe. That's a great way to put it. Big vibe. And I think movie. I like vibe movies when they they feel like smaller scale mm-hmm. when I have like less to juggle. So did you feel like it was just, it was too labyrinthine with the plot and the, the shaggy dog detective story? Yeah. And I would not say I'm particular. I don't even, I don't even know that I like mysteries that much or even like noir is a genre enough to watch a sort of like funny sort of take, take on that. Oh my gosh. We're in such a, we're in such a big fight. Um, <laughs> People I'm trying can't so see hard this. to I'm, be good. <laughs> I, I'm hiding, I'm hiding my head underneath my we shirt We should have hidden it's, the cameras. Yeah. Um, no, that's okay. That's okay. Um, you know, I don't even particularly like your writing that much. Actually, now that we bring it up, you know, I just said all that because you're Thank on my you. show. How about I, that? I honestly love to hear from people who disagree with my writing. <laughs> it's good. It's it's really good for me if I've learned anything from grad school. <laughs> okay. Well, while I catch my breath, let's you and I watch this quick scene. And <laughs> um, we'll take it from there. Um, I've got some Thorazine that I'm going to swallow. Uh, while we're doing that, and we will be right back. Michael Wolfman, one of Los Angeles' most prominent real estate developers, announced at a Wednesday press conference is proceeding with the construction of several new urban housing developments, the most immediate to be called Channel View Estate. Hey, Doc. Howdy. Cop came around last night looking for you again. Bigfoot? Yeah, that's the one. Huh. I wonder why I didn't kick in my door like usual. Might have been thinking about it, but said something like, tomorrow's another day. Should be today, right? What am I gonna help you? Alright, Wolfman known for his outlandish advertising and aggressive style. Has been um, actively involved in the Southern Capital Real Estate Market for the past 20 feet. We're back from as I said, it's, it's a very easy peasy scene. Nothing no heavy lifting there. Uh and if we we should probably start with you know we're we are now I think in, in the era of peak Joaquin Phoenix thirst, oh, and sure. 
and I don't know how we can start this without talking about the the afro. I love it. Is it can can we at least admit that that's something you can more than tepidly enjoy about this film is Joaquin Phoenix with an afro. Totally. And I will say sort of like coming into this rewatch and going from like kind of dislike to sort of like I think in the intervening five years since I initially saw this Joaquin Phoenix is an actor I think I used to feel kind of no particular way about whatsoever who I've come to really love so I think revisiting also with like so much more affection and uh admiration for what I know he is capable of really brought a lot more to this character of Doc for me and there's such a warmth in this performance right like he's so tender I was in the, the first episode, which has not aired yet, uh, I talk about this with Blake. He's like he's like a good dog in this movie. He's like a really lovable, shaggy dog where mm-hmm. there's just something so loyable, loyal and sweet about him and kind about him. And I, I don't usually feel that way about him as a performer. I love him as a performer, but I also feel like, you know, maybe it's just because knowing that he's such an intense performer... There are times where, you know, I'll see him and he kind of scares the hell out of me. Like even when he's playing a, a sort of hero, like in something like you were never really there or here, excuse me. Um, but yeah, in this film, I kind of just want to give him a hug and ask him if he's OK. Like, you know, take him out for some pizza. Just make sure he's doing OK. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he's like, sort of affable stoner. Yeah. Like I kind of want to ruffle his hair, just to, like the curly hair, just a little bit, like just. Just I'm like, it. you don't have to solve these mysteries. You can actually just do something else. You know, he's got a girlfriend. He's got Penny. He's got Reese Witherspoon. He doesn't yeah. need to sweat Shasta. You yeah. know, I want to to call him on his really bright mint green phone and remind him of that. Yeah, but, it's like you don't have to actually go back. No, he doesn't have to go back. But... Tomorrow's another day, <laughs> as, as we hear in the scene. It is. It is. It is. And um, if... The nice encapsulation of the movie, that sort of tomorrow's another day. And him being like, not if I can help it. But that would be today, right? Yeah. Which is equal. And I love that Bigfoot would, of course, threaten someone with a quote from Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. Like that feel that feels very in keeping with his his pre World War II persona that he carries in the film. That his version of badassery would be to threaten someone with "Tomorrow is another day." Bigfoot but- is like part of this film that I'm just like, Ugh, I don't get what this is, but. <gasps> You know, but everyone, everyone I talk to is like, oh, Brolin, oh, Bigfoot. And I'm just like, I, I wonder if I've missed something. That's like, it doesn't, uh, you're worse. It's such a bad fight. I love Joanna Newsom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gasp. I got to spell it out. G-A-S-P. Gasp. Really? Well, that's. I'm going to get canceled. My ads like, are going to be so bad after this. <laughs> yeah, you're going to get canceled for this. Um, I, I am palpably breaking out in a sweat right now as we speak. Look, we're not going to fight. Fran, we're not going to fight. We're going to get through this. We're going to get through this. I'm not here to fight. Or this is going to be one of those things where we're going to fight, but I think we're going to, at the end, we'll be closer. We'll yeah, understand yeah, each yeah. other a little. And it will be a bit more like, I think, Bigfoot and Doc at the end of the movie where... We're on, you know, we, we're going to be able to put aside this Tom and Jerry business and quit, quit beating each other up and understand that each person's in pain and that we're just two sides of the same coin, I think. So you don't like Bigfoot. Um, well, sure. I like when he asks for more pancakes. 
<laughs> I remember that being the big bit of the trailer. This really, this was a mistake to not make this a video uh, podcast to not let people see the the way your face went dead just now. And you're like, oh, I like when he eats pancakes. Like, <laughs> like it was almost like an ins- insult the way <laughs> the way your face just went slack. No, I mean, Bro- Brolin is someone also who like I think maybe I've had a sort of reverse trajectory with where I just have come to really dislike Brolin, but. Wow, you were just laying yourself bare today. Like, the... but I like I love Joaquin Phoenix, and he like <laughs> it took me time to like come come around on him. Yeah, well, Bigfoot is probably my favorite character of the film. Um, I do I do love what he does in the film, um, just because I think he is a fun, a very fun funhouse mirror of everything that Doc is going through because they've both lost people. And so he's this nice kind of um, kind of stretched out and exaggerated counterpoint to what Doc is going through. Mm-hmm. You know, Doc is missing Shasta. Bigfoot is missing his partner, Vincent mm-hmm. Indelicato, who he very longingly and miserably fillets bananas over. Um which, you know, you gotta love that, right? Something. Yeah, I love a frozen Friend, treat. Give me something. I love a frozen treat. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah wow you are the first person who's told me that is like that that is what does that's one of the things that does doesn't work for you is uh is bigfoot i'm just i just don't know what he is i feel i don't i feel like i don't have like a full grasp on that character and like mm-hmm. the level of sort of unpredictability with which i watch him does not sort of delight me in like a level of surprise i think i just feel as if though i'm always trying to like piece it together i mean i i do feel at times when i'm not enjoying this movie which is not for all of it that i am like solving a math problem that i am sort of like am i too old to be solving this you know (laughs) i would like to opt out but it's like i don't know i was i think about this a lot also with like uh interstellar which came out the same year Mm -hmm. which i have sort of a I, I mean, I really love Interstellar, but I have this thing where I think I'm, like, really all in on it for maybe the first 90 minutes, which is how I felt upon this rewatch of Inher- of Inherent Vice. And then somewhere around the 90-minute mark, I just get tired and I start to get, like, grumpy. Um, <laughs> and I'm, like, really ready to, like, go home. Is it the Mental Institute? Is that where it loses you? I feel a lot of people check out when he, when he <laughs> surreptitiously finds uh, Mickey Wolfman at the at the institute the chris kyladon institute yeah it, yeah and that he does that and then it keeps going because then <laughs> i'm like forced to reckon with the fact that the movie is not really about the mystery and then i'm mad oh well yeah well, now, boy you just cut me off you just my my argument here was gonna say well that's the thing is this is just one of those mystery movies where you put the mystery aside and you don't worry and about I, I definitely who shot who <laughs> oh yeah i mean I mean, I got that this time around. I don't think I got that in 2014, truly. I think I was truly too stupid to realize that five years ago. No, no, um, no. don't say that. Well, I think I always, I think when people tell me things also like, don't try to solve it or like, it's not really about that. I'm going to be like, okay, well, they don't want me to, but I'm still going to try. I never just like <laughs> sort of take the L on something like that. Well, the thing is, and... This is probably where I'll where I will sound like the pretentious, annoying, inherent vice fan is it's not that complicated a mystery 
it's that I think the information is so kind of backgrounded that the connections are being made, but they're not being made explicitly and they're not being made right beneath your nose. You know, I think that there's some mumbled convoluted conversation later in the film that, well, he discovered he discovered drugs. He lost his fucking mind and he decided in the midst of hanging out with the Aryan Brotherhood that he was going to give away free uh, free housing to to hippies and the FBI. They they when once they realized he was giving away free money, they're like, well, we'll just team up with the Golden Fang, kidnap him and reprogram him and we can put him we can install him in Vegas. All of that information is so kind of pushed to the outer edges of the pot fog that clouds the film. But I do think I, I mean I would I would argue that that's that's very on purpose, especially in the film, which does it even more than the book, because I think for the for Paul Thomas Anderson, this film wasn't about the the death of the promise of the '60s generation, you know, as it was for Pynchon. I think he backgrounded all that because I think for PTA, this film is just about how badly you miss someone. And how, yeah. and how hard it and is like, to let them go. And like, what do you go. owe someone you used to love, if any? Exactly. And two characters who are really wrestling with that question the entire film are both Doc and Bigfoot. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons that Bigfoot is such a prominent figure in the film is because, as we do find out later, uh, Adrian Prussia, a hitman for both the LAPD and the Golden Fang. So yeah, okay, yeah, I, get, I do realize now, as even even as I'm saying this, it's getting a little convoluted. But um, he killed Bigfoot's partner, and that's something that Bigfoot wrestles with: is what does he owe Vincent and Delacado? How much vengeance is he owed? And I think that that's a big part of the his arc in this film is him knowing that he is not capable of personally avenging the death of his partner. And so he's constantly there to nudge and poke and prod Doc in the direction of Adrian Prussia and Puck Beaverton to eventually get justice for Vincent because that's what he feels he owes him. And I think that that's something that, that Doc also deals with is what does he owe Shasta exactly? And how how far should he go for her? And obviously because Doc's a good dog, he's a loyal dog, he's going to go as far as it takes. And that's that's why I love him so much. But um, I'm realizing now by the look on your face, I am not swaying you to the the Bigfoot Bjornsson fan club that I was getting ready to start up this month. I mean, it's well, I think there's also a level of like, what does Doc owe Bigfoot? You know, does he like I mean, I guess he's sort of doing Bigfoot's like setting him up to do these tasks. But does he like owe it to him to do them? And like, what does it mean that he does do them? I don't think, well, that's the thing is, I don't think that Doc even knows that that, you know, the thing about Doc is, bless his heart, he's not usually in the sharpest frame of mind. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that he realizes for the longest time that Bigfoot is actually directing him purposefully. I think a good, uh, you know, as, as you're, you mentioned the, the pancake scene that comes later in that sequence, I don't think that Doc realizes that. Bigfoot is pushing him in certain directions. I think he thinks that Bigfoot is incompetent. And that's why he's constantly bringing up Adrian Prussia and Puck Beaverton and ignoring information about dentists with uh, fang marks in their neck after dying from trampoline accidents. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it is until much, much later in the film when he's actually reading the police report that notes that Adrian Prussia, God, we're going to need a whiteboard to get through this, that Adrian Prussia killed Vincent. It's only then that I think he realizes 
that Bigfoot is much more deeply connected to this case. But I think at that point, Doc is so deep in the case and so dedicated to its resolution that he has to keep going. But I also, and I, but I also think that I think Doc's a good guy, and I think that there is something in him that recognizes that Bigfoot is suffering from the a similar pain, mm-hmm. uh, pain of kind of loss and of missing someone. And, you know, sort of she even notes uh, in her narration during that sequence that um, the one thing that Doc could respect about the LAPD, the only thing, is their loyalty that they have for one another. And I think in recognizing that Bigfoot is actually kind of the loser in the LAPD and not quite the, the John Wayne badass that he presents himself to be, that I think that in a way, I think Bigfoot actually kind of starts to feel, or Doc starts to feel bad for Bigfoot, you know, because he is yeah. kind of, he's a pathetic character. Like, I, I, one of my favorite moments in the film is him just shaking his head at the, uh, the pancake restaurant and saying, no Cielo Drive for Bigfoot. <laughs> you know, there's just something so pathetic about a man lamenting that he didn't get a Manson and that he didn't get a Cielo Drive. And I love that, you know, Doc just puts his head down and tries not to laugh as this is happening but i think deep down they there is a weird caring i think that's what that scene is about at the end when um bigfoot's clearly you know a a derelict at this point and he's just eating all of doc's pot and doc's just crying and shaking his head and he's like are you okay brother um but uh that's that's my big bigfoot exegesis and uh i beg of you i beg of you to give bigfoot another chance someday give him another try I wonder if I'll ever rewatch this movie again. <laughs> I guess you're watching it so many times. I'm sort of like, I wonder if it's going to need another five years with me <laughs> to click. I don't well, know. There's, there's, you have those experiences with things, you know? Yeah, Which... that's true. Um, there, there are even films by this very director that I did not like when I first watched them. And now I think they're amazing. But it took like a decade of just going, I am going to sit down. And I'm going to deal with this rain of frogs. And I'm going to love it. Everyone else loves it. I'm going to love it. Yeah, I know she smiles at the camera at the end. And it's really sweet. I get it. I get it. But it's just so long. And they start to sing. It took me a long time. But now I do love it. So I tell you what we'll do is we'll do a sequel to this in about five years. Great. And we'll bring you back on. If the Earth still exists and if Los Angeles is still here. Yeah. Yeah, those are ifs. But if we're not currently all the last remnants of society aren't on some weird island and we're all wearing loincloths and we have pig heads on spikes, short of that, and even if we have that, maybe we'll just do like the tin can with a string and -hmm. we'll record another episode and we'll find out if you ever came around on Bigfoot because I love him so much and I want you to love Bigfoot. It's important to me, even though now I realize even saying that I am becoming Twitter guy, just demanding that you love something because I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, now I'm going to cancel you. Yeah. And we will just continue to cancel each other. I mean, Which would make us like Doc and Bigfoot. True. Wow, foils. Yeah. Now I get it. I was sort of like, is Bigfoot Tom Wamsgams and Doc is Cousin Greg? (laughs) That's sort of the mental math I was just trying to do. No, we're Doc and we're, and you can, I'll let you can be Doc because you have just flowing hair like Doc. And um, I'm very crump- grumpy and emotionally unstable, like Bigfoot. See, see, now you get it. Yeah, I'm also like late in life, addicted to weed. Like there you it go. all, it all checks there you out. Go. It's exactly perfect. Late in see? life, I'm like 17 years old, but <laughs> 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 whatever, it tracks. <laughs> see, I knew if we talked, 
we would come to an understanding. And now I'm going to eat a bowl full of weed and you're going to sit there and cry. Eh, yeah. In picture. Like There's no reason to continue the episode at this point. No. But I suppose we might as well. Well, now that we've got you in the Josh Brolin, Bigfoot Bjornsson fan, fan club. Yeah, and, I'm wearing my enamel pin. Yeah, I was going to send you an honorary patch and a sash. And then there's Ooh, like, a couple, but moving back backwards through the scene, speaking as someone who this, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, this scene might have actually been kind of frustrating to you because what I love about this scene is it's a basic detective movie exposition dump in which the movie clearly has no interest in any of the information that's being downloaded to the audience in this sequence. Like uh, the the dialogue is somewhat muted by the wind. And it seems like the focus of the scene is much more about the rare kind of flair of angry, masculine jealousy he gets that his ex-old is with someone else. And he can't even finish reading the article. He's just like, me, 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 whatever, and tosses the newspaper into the wind. And yet, now that I'm thinking about it, this might not be the best scene for you at all, because that's exactly what I think you find a little frustrating, is that this is the first scene for me when I was watching the film the first time, where I was like, oh, he... Because this is not even a scene that's in, that's it's not even in the book. This is specific for the film. It's not even in the script. Oh but wow! It's, it, this is a scene that where it's clear. It's like, yeah, he has no interest in this case whatsoever. PTA. He has no interest in the mystery. <laughs> I'm just. I have a hard time even listening to this scene, and that's not because of quality. <laughs> I just like knowing the second time around that it's like not really about the mystery. I was like, so what do I do with a scene that is like about the mystery? You know, like, how do how do I take it? And yeah, it's that reaction of just like not even wanting to like finish the article. But at this point, I'm just sort of like focused, you know, on Joaquin's like perm. I'm looking <laughs> at everyone's denim shorts. I'm really just sort of absorbing like the look. I like love the shape of these coffee cups. They're very handsome that's, coffee cups. That's just sort of like where I'm at. And I like admittedly like knowing that this is my scene kept having to go back because I was like I'm not even listening to what they're talking about like <laughs> I don't even if it doesn't matter like why do why do I have to and so I'm like all right I'd like all I need to know is that he's gonna go like check something out <laughs> that's sort of the sure but I mean I the thing that this... happens at this stage in the in the in the detective movie oh god you've got me on the ropes now Seeing him so kind of negative and angry and jealous and bitter that Shasta is with someone else when he should be focused on the case and saving this guy from possibly getting kidnapped and having all of his, his billions taken from him. You know, I, I like that, that that he's allowed to be human here and allowed to be angry, angry and unpleasant, um, all while his partner, Dinas, uh, rhymes with penis as the script and the novel both helpfully point out many times throughout. Uh, as he just kind of sits there and listens to him rant. I think it's important for men to talk to each other about how they're <laughs> feeling. Um, yeah, I don't even see him as that angry in this scene. I do think he's just being kind of pissy, and I think he's annoyed, and I think it's maybe, like, less of an... It's, like, an annoyance with himself, I think, also, that he's, like, allowed himself to, like, become entrenched in this why almost so quickly. Why am I helping her? Why am I helping her? Yeah, she left like, me, and now I'm yeah. helping her with her boyfriend? Who's yeah, married? like, I don't think he's even mad, like, reading this, he's not mad at Mickey Wolfman. He's, like, mad at himself for, like, taking time out of his day to read about Mickey Wolfman, who he doesn't care about or, or, like, would have no reason to care about were it not for the Shasta connection. 
exactly exactly and it's like it's sort of like when you i don't know do like a bad internet deep dive for no reason and then you're like why do i have this information i don't want this and now i have (laughs) like what have i lost in my brain to get this information and i so enjoy that because i think pta is way more interested in turning this story of a lost generation into taking that from the novel and turning it into a film about a lost love I love that he takes the person who should be the the principal interest of a mystery, and that's Mickey, someone who in a normal film noir would be, would be kept rather, rather backgrounded and somewhat mysterious, and you don't meet until late in the game. And I love how he uses that trope instead to make Mickey the guy that she tells you not to worry about, but you're totally worried about, and you're so obsessed with him. Uh, and you're like, well... Uh, how much money does he have? Oh, God. And, and like reading these newspaper articles about how rich and powerful he is and strong he is. And he he totally dot and Mickey, they totally become that meme. You know, the guy she tells you not to worry you and the guy she tells you not to worry about. And there's mm-hmm. there's Doc sitting there with his perm. And then there's Mickey all squared lantern jawed and his hair slicked back. And he's all Eric Robertsy. I was going to say and it. He's freaking Eric Roberts. Like, he's I'm worried. Eric Roberts. Eric I love Roberts. to see Eric Roberts in a movie. Well, it, oh wow! If if I if if we can find a positive avenue to talk about it, hey, let's go down this one. How about Eric Roberts in this movie? I love Don't that. I love, love that. Roberts. I love that Eric Roberts. You do. I do too. I best performance of um, the 1980s in uh, Runaway Train. I'm going to say it doesn't get appreciated enough. He's amazing. But uh, yeah, and I love that he just has kind of a walk-on in this movie. Everyone in this movie is basically a walk-on cameo, which I also love about this, that Mm -hmm. these characters, we're only going to see them once. And so you have to have the most memorable face possible attached Mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I I love the idea that you're sitting there, you want to look and see what this guy looks like. You know, he can't be all that. I've got a beautiful afro. I've got cool mutton chops. Mm -hmm. I live on the beach. And then you see that it's basically a billionaire eric roberts like yeah. how the how depressing is that and i it's do think horrible. and again i i need to jump back really quickly and say it was a mistake to not somehow broadcast the video of this conversation because the way your eyes moved after a long pause and you took a deep breath and you said i think it's important that men talk to each other was maybe my favorite part of doing this podcast so far fellas got a vibe check <laughs> So many movies about how are about how men need to vibe check. But that's the thing, is if they did, there wouldn't be a movie. Like if there isn't all that pile up of toxic so masculinity. Well I guess so. I guess without that's that, that true. car crash of mass ta- toxic masculinity, there's no movie. It's like uh when you get mad at someone when they open the door in a horror movie. If they just hadn't opened the door, everything'd be fine. But if they don't go into the basement, then what are we gonna yeah, want? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you had vibe checked, there'd be no conflict. Man versus vibe check. Uh <laughs> And yeah, if Doc had just vibe checked and gotten high uh, instead of, you know, chasing after his ex's uh male, Yeah, well, if, male yeah, mistress, if one of Doc's bros had been like, don't get involved in this. Like, she wants you to get involved in this and something <laughs> like that. That's where I really think one of his friends could have stepped up. Yeah, this I think Dean bad take on this movie i'm just like Fran, shut the fuck up <laughs> that's fran's review for doc should just eaten some pizza it was sort it was you know it's sorely she kind of sent him down on this yeah journey. she's yeah she's his bro she is his bro if she's even real and do I you think, have 
Do you have an opinion on this? This is the not big real. question. Not real. You don't think she's real? Not real. Because you, you don't know, cast Joanna Newsom to play a real person in your movie. <laughs> I love her. I love her to death. I love her to death. I love her as sort of leash. Not real. No. And you know, you never see her interact with any human being. No, and that. I was looking. I I I cannot it's I would be embarrassed to tell you how many times I've gone through the film just to take notes on her eye lines and if she matches with anybody else and if she talks to literally anyone else. And no one ever looks at her. No one talks to her. But there she is. She's like Doc's Jiminy Cricket. But she's she's not telling them to vibe check. She's not telling them to, like, to just chill. Let it go. Yeah. Well, when women have to tell guys to vibe check, that's emotional labor. So we don't, <laughs> we don't like that, actually. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. No, not real. Not real. Love, Sir Delish. Boy, this episode's taken a turn, Fran. It We're all over the place. We're all over the place. The movie's fine. The movie loses me, but it's so tender. It is very tender and very lovely. I feel Just like at a certain point, I wanna, I'm ready to go to bed. I feel like you're in the, the emotional labor part of this conversation right now, where you're telling me what I need to hear to leave you alone. <laughs> no. No, I don't perform <laughs> any emotional labor. Um that was a very performative no, though. No, no. Wow, this you. is. Thank you. I'm getting my MFA in acting. <laughs> Boy, this has just been an emotional roller coaster so far. This call, and I just, I hope you mean what you say that you're gonna come around on it. Because if I die in a fire today, oh my like, god, this is gonna be our last conversation. And you're my gonna god, be like, I lied to him. <laughs> I lied to him about inherent vice. I could have just been straight with him. But no, no, no. I mean, my straight is I'm just like, I like it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just like this. Yeah. And it's like Paul Thomas Anderson. Like, I love and respect him a lot. It's just like, not all the movies hit for me. Now, did you ever did you ever read the book? No, I have like very little interest in Pynchon. But mm -hmm. that's like, I got no I got no bones with Pynchon. I just feel like I will say like, Doing doing an MFA in writing right now, a lot of my reading is either for school or it's like hyper focused on like stuff I'm trying to do. Yeah. And just examples of that. And Pynchon feels so far away from the kind of work I'm trying to do that like at this point it would not be educational for me to read him. I don't think I will never read him, but I have I have no sort of connection and have not read the book or any of his stuff. Well, if I can be so bold. When you, decide to, when you decide to take that turn and go down that boulevard, I have a pension book I would suggest. Mm. It's called Inherent Vice. Oh. It's, it's easy to read for him. It's pretty slim. It's pretty slight. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's a trim couple of hundred pages. There, I don't believe there are any footnotes. There's no large... Well, there are some large digressions, but it's all in good fun. And you've seen the movie. I've seen the so movie, yeah. And it's also, it's very different. It's very different from the film. It's a bit colder. It's a bit more distant. Mm. And it's way more convoluted and mysterious, which I'm, I'm sure you're going to love. <laughs> you know, I saw Room with a View, the movie, before I read the book. And then when I read the book, I was like, I think I like the movie better. You know? If, if reading that book gets <laughs> you to love, love this film just a little bit more, I wholeheartedly, I wholeheartedly support this decision. And now Sometimes I have to... the movie is better than the book. We don't talk about that enough. Sometimes it just is. It is. It's very, and you know, this might be sacrilege because I'm, you know, 
Pynchon's considered, you know, one of the golden gods. But mm-hmm. I actually quite enjoy this film much, much more than I do the book. I think that's that it, that's legal. Is that's it legal? Are law, we? Yeah. Um, I think it's much. <laughs> some people might be rolling their eyes at this, but I think it's much cleaner and less convoluted than the book. And there is a deeper emotional core in the film. Because as I said, the film is much more about the mourning of a lost generation, which I think every generation after this generation has already had to hear about for the past 40 or 50 years. We've had to hear so many people lament the death of the 60s and the death of the dream and the events of the Manson murders being and Altamont being the death knell for the, that, that period of change and how wonderful it could have been. We've spent the last 40 or 50 or 50 years talking about that. And I like that. I like, I love so much that PTA took that and made it metaphor for the pain of just losing one person and that, that, that you just can't stop talking about, which is kind of sad and pathetic in real life, but there's something about it on a film where it's, even well to not me not unrelatable right? though yeah and it's there's something so sweet and sad about his loyalty to this woman who's as as pta's even said is probably not the right person for him like she's mm-hmm. she's not the right person for him she's not good for him um and he already has someone that he's with but mm-hmm. there's some there's i think all of us have probably experienced this there's that one person who you know is going to fuck your life up but if they call you you're going to answer the, you're going to answer that call if they come yep. to your door, you're going to be like, all right, what do you got? What is it? Just and like, you know, at the end of that opening scene, he's like, you can stay here. I got an extra, I got room. You can stay here if you want. And I think everyone has that person. For Thomas Pynchon, apparently it's the 1960s. But mm-hmm. I think for PTA, it's much more important that it's just Shasta. And uh, yeah, that kills me. I love that. And uh, you know what? And you know who it is for me? It's it's Bigfoot. And I'm going to wow. and I'm going to I'm going to bring you around the Bigfoot. And Bigfoot misses someone, so maybe just spare a thought for old Bigfoot when you get a chance. I want to like a guy who likes treats, but... He does, and I gotta tell you, on a hot day like today, when the entire city is on fire, a a frozen banana, or a frozen chocolate-covered banana does sound pretty tasty right now. Sounds amazing. All right. Well, on that note... Thank you, Fran, for coming on today. Thank you for Thank talking you, about inherent vice with me. I was happy to. I and I I really enjoyed it. And hey, I didn't cry once. No, not once. You I hear saw that, Mom? I, I saw a glimmer, once. but you uh, you kept it in. I hid my face. I did break out into a cold sweat at one point. Mm-hmm. But um, you, you can find Fran's work at Brightwall Dark Room. It's mm-hmm. absolutely amazing. Or her mm-hmm. own site, which is franhoffner.fyi. Mm-hmm. Or you can follow her on Twitter at franhoffner. And you'll be really glad you did. She's very funny. Even if she will occasionally talk shit about a certain director that we all know and love on this show. I highly recommend that you follow her. I highly recommend that you read her. Uh, thank you again, Fran, for coming on. This was actually a lot of fun. And I enjoyed it a <laughs> thank you deal. for having me. <laughs> uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And I'm going to see you next time, or I'll talk to you next time, with a very special guest who has never seen Inherent Vice before prepping for this very show. 
Normally, a show ends with me telling you that we'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice. But in Fran's case, next time will be five years from now. Will she love Inherent Vice by then? Will the hippie-hating mad dog Bigfoot Bjornsson have kicked down the door to her heart and offered her a chocolate-covered frozen banana? Will the mystery not matter as much? as any character of Inherent Vice would know. Only time will tell. As for the rest of us, we'll be here next week and neck deep in stories of Peckerwood prison gangs, real estate fuckery, and the long sad history of LA land use as our very special guest leads us down a rabbit hole history of La La Land crime and crime fiction. Will it all make sense or just blow away like a newspaper in an LA windstorm? I guess we'll see what we can see after all next time on Increment Vice.